Hello, and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and silos. <laughs> I'm your user experience silo, Roman Burkott. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you doing? Good evening, Roman. How are you doing? I had a moment where I, I thought you said Cylons, and I was like, oh yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> I'm a user experience Cylon. Uh, no, that was for that would have been good for the robot episode. Where this isn't the robot episode. <laughs> or maybe we'll we'll save that for a part two. Oh, <laughs> like like where you're thinking. Well, hey, I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Berenice Degusti. Um, she wrote up a really nice feature of her top uh, her six top picks for UX podcasts, and uh, featured. UX like us and the list of being among her favorites uh, and feeling like she she gets to hang out with us uh, when we talk. So I thought it was a really nice feature. And uh, just in case you have some unused podcast listening uh, capacity, there's a lot of other really great podcasts listed there as well. But thanks a lot, Berenice. Yeah, that was really great. I was very happy to hear that you know people are listening and enjoying it. So that's uh, that makes me feel great, and that makes me. Uh, you know, want to do it more often. So uh, thank you, Bernice. So Larry, I'm a big fan of the manager tools company. Uh, I guess that's the name of their company, right? Ma- manager tools. Yes. Um, great, well. great resources for, for learning about uh, management. If anybody who's interested in getting in the art of people management, or you're just ready to get in, they have free podcasts and they have all their content free available by podcasts. And I highly recommend you starting there um, because it's a valuable, invaluable resource. And there's a lot of great tips on how to become a better people manager if that's something you're interested in. So yeah, I highly recommend them as well. And they didn't even pay for that. I've been to their in-person training. um, And if you happen to be a manager of people and you haven't had training specifically about how to manage people, you should definitely check out manager tools because there's actually uh, more to it than just kind of winging it. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like everything in life. Yeah. And they're to your point, uh, in, incredibly generous with their knowledge, their podcasts that put you in the top 1% of people managers in the planet just by listening to that every week. So yeah, good call out. So I got a, an email from them just this morning that was super topical to what we were planning to talk about today. And, um, I'll just read it. It says born out of his research, the Allen curve says that if the desks of two engineers are more than 50 meters apart, the probable number of communications between them is less than one. <laughs> and then some specific research found that two people in the same department and on the same project, but on different floors, are so unlikely to communicate that there was no data to use to calculate the probability. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. And uh, I think that all serves as a really great lead into what we want to talk about today, which is uh, cross-functional teams. Is it unbelievable? I don't think it's unbelievable at all. In fact, I think it's very believable. <laughs> it's it's, it's <laughs> hyper-believable. It's hyper-believable. so believable it hurts. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's right. 
Yeah, so you know, it's it's all too easy to get into our our, our cube farms. You know, for uh, those of us that end up going back to offices, um, and you know, this this specific research doesn't even take into account um, the challenges introduced by remote work. Uh, but just the fact that people could be on the same uh, part of the same team and part of the same project and just being separated by one floor on the same building would reduce the likelihood of them talking to <laughs> somewhere near zero. If I think about most of the work that gets done in an organization, most of the work get, that gets done isn't solo work. Right. I mean, or there might be, there's obviously, you know, aspects of, you know, work that you might do that's solo, but it typically is, you know, a part of something bigger than just one thing that you're working on, right? It's part of a, mm-hmm, a, a mm-hmm. program or you're, you put, you're working on one part of, you know, uh, many inputs that go into, you know, a, a product, whether it's the definition of the product or actually building it or making it, you know, you know, marketing and things like that. So it's, you know, there's definitely a lot of different individuals working together towards a, a common goal, I guess is the, that's what, that's what you would hope. Um, right. <laughs> but um, obviously often that doesn't happen, right? It takes a, a team of different individuals with different skill sets to come together and um, be able to, you know, make products and, and, and do other things that, you know, have to, uh, that get produced in knowledge work. Well, I think that's a great introduction to the, to the why of why do we need cross-functional teams? Um, certainly just about everything we do in a company, unless you're a solopreneur. Solopreneur? Uh, wow. <laughs> unless you're, you happen to be a solopreneur, um, you're, not, uh, you're, you're likely to have to depend on other people to get anything done. And so uh, I, I accept your argument as for why it's important to have a cross-functional team but let's uh, let's dig into a little bit of what what makes a cross-functional team. What is a cross-functional team, and is that uh, is that the term you prefer? By the way, I think it's the term that, as a lot of people in the industry use, but um, I've also run across people that use that term in wildly different ways, and <laughs> you have. Pe- multiple people in an organization using the term cross-functional team and meaning completely different things and thinking they're on the same page. Um, so one of the things that I say that I think a cross-functional team is not is it's not two silos in a company working together temporarily on a project or initiative, right? So I've heard a lot of executives say, oh, we have a cross-functional team working on X to you know help our transformation or whatever. And it's like, that's not a cross-functional team. That is two, three separate teams and separate silos that are coming together temporarily to um, work on something and then they're going to go their separate ways, right? And in my mind, that's not what I think about when I'm thinking about a cross-functional team. That almost makes it sound like, by definition, a waterfall approach to product development couldn't really qualify as a truly cross-functional team because it's that throw it over the wall <laughs> mentality, right? You could define the opposite of what a cross-functional team is with, by using the waterfall as an example, a really good example of, you know, what it isn't. Um, because, you know, that's, again, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's throwing things over the wall. The waterfall is definitely an anti-pattern for cross-functional teams. Um, two silos working together temporarily is an anti-pattern for cross-functional teams. <laughs> hey, we call ourselves a cross-functional team because... Uh, we, we met for a kickoff meeting 
and we're all going to be at the launch party. <laughs> yes, exactly. There you go. All right. So let's let's talk about what uh, a cross-functional team is. Um, and I, when I think of a cross-functional team, I think of it as a group of people that have the necessary skill sets amongst that group um, to do um, do whatever it is they're, they're, they're trying to accomplish. So it's a you know, small group of people, necessary skill sets, and importantly, the incentives, <laughs> the mm-hmm. right incentives that are shared among that group to achieve a, a shared set of, of objectives. Um, so um, oftentimes, I, another anti-pattern is like, well, you have an engineering team, design team that are you know, throwing things over the walls. They, the design team has a different boss and they're a different part of the company. Maybe they're in a, you know, a, more of a service role to the company as opposed to embedded in the team. And then you get the engineering team that has an, a, a different VP and they have a whole different set of OKRs and incentives and things like that. Um, so you got to have design, you have to have um, business and you have to have engineering to make good products and be successful. And when those different skill sets are on different teams, then you have different incentives and you'd have different objectives uh, typically. And it's very hard to align. Even if we, you know, you have somebody farther up the chain saying, Oh, this is your objectives for all you people. <laughs> and mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. it's still, you know, if they're not on the team together and have that shared incentive structure it's very, and, and shared communication structure, importantly, <laughs> then it's very difficult for the, for those, for those disciplines to align when they're not on the, the, you know, the, on a shared team working towards a, a common goal. That would suggest to me that if your um, your goals for the year, that your OKRs for the quarter are based on your discipline's particular set of deliverables, um, that might suggest that you don't have truly aligned cross-functional, uh, you know, you don't have the cross-functional team structure um, because you're not really uh, aligned on the same outcomes. Right. And I'll give you a, a, an example of that. Um, uh, like, for instance, maybe you say you have an engineering team um, that's on that's working on a particular product and they're separate from, say, the design team that's working on that same product. But they're, you know, they're, they're separate teams. They have separate, you know, um, they're in separate parts of the business. They have, you know, separate VPs and, and all of that. And for this quarter, say that engineering team, one of their objectives is, hey, we have to like we, we got to cut. Uh, cut our cost of, of, of goods or our cogs, right? Because we're, mm-hmm. you know, we, 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 we have a cloud product, but it was, you know, uh, it was one, it was a early days cloud product. So there's a bunch of technical debt and it doesn't, it, it, when you scale it up, it, it's really expensive because we haven't done all the, the new things, the new cloud technologies that make things a lot cheaper and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. so that group now has an incentives like, Hey, we need to save, you know, shave $2 million off our operating costs, um, you know, because of all this, you know, cloud technical debt we have. And the design teams over here, like saying, you know, we have all these, you know, this research saying that, hey, if we do, you know, these these four features, or we and we improve on this one, we can get better outcomes for customers, and we'll get better retention. Right now, you have diff- two different teams with two different, you know, objectives and two different sets of incentives. You know, sort of coming trying to hash that out. Right, and mm-hmm. usually the team with the most power is going to, you know, win that one, <laughs> which is. In my experience, the engineering team, because they actually are the ones that are, um, you know, you know, putting the bits into things. That's not always the case, but um, a lot of times it's the case. Um, and so that is a really hard uh, position for both those teams to be in and, and, and be effective, right? 
as you're talking about it, I could imagine ways to try to align those incentives via a project that, you know, gets things headed in the right direction. But that starting point is so misaligned where one team's trying to cut cost and another's trying to invest in something new. It would be very easy for them to just clash or, you know, um, maybe to your point, never even um, get on the same page and one team's doing their thing. (laughs) The other team's doing something completely different and, Uh, we're all working real hard and we're all delivering a bunch of whatever we produce. Um, You know, if, if, if if we're just counting output instead of outcomes, uh, but ultimately we're not making a difference for our users and we're not making a difference for the company. Yep, exactly. The notion of a cross-functional team uh, has people from different disciplines, but they don't necessarily um, have to, uh, have the same boss. So is that more like a, a matrix arrangement where I have a designer boss, but I'm working on a product development team? Yeah. And that brings in one of the, in, an interesting um, aspect of, I think, uh, really effective cross-functional teams. And that is the amount of autonomy that is granted to that team, right? Um because uh, I think you really need to give that team a substantial amount of autonomy and and trust, really, to agree, uh, achieve the shared objectives and 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 entrust them to say, hey, here are the objectives and key, key results that you're responsible for. Now, you as a team, go figure out how to um, you know to to accomplish that. I think that in giving them the rope to not be prescriptive about how to go do that, I think that's a really important part of the the objectives and key results. So. For, to, to go back to your point, yes, you do like you, I think, and there, one model is to say, Hey, you have this matrix thing where it's like, yeah, the designers are all have a community practice of designers and they have people management that are aligned with design. You got product management that are, you know, in the, in some sort of, you know, business part of the, you know, and, and have, uh, they report up through, you know, other product managers, same thing with engineering. They have that community of practice that they, you know, and people management that they, have and and report up through, but when it comes to the actual people, you know, that we group together to do the work, those are, that's the team. And we give them the autonomy to do do what they they need to do to, to, to um, uh, achieve those goals. And then, you know, as you go farther up, you're going to have to have, you know, other groups of cross-functional teams at the, you know, at the, the senior manager and, 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 and executive levels that are the ones that, you know, have to figure out, you know, what those objectives are, you know, that align to the business strategy that they can, you know, help, you know, collaborate with those teams to, to create and also, you know, figure out, you know, where do we need to make teams to, you know, how do, how do we divide up these people to, to make teams that are going to sort of self-organize into the, into the, the, the right teams to be able to, you know, uh, do the work that needs to be done for the business. It does seem like what you're talking about would be at odds with a lot of um, high output engineering organizations that are organized around resources, human resources that can just cycle into a project and then cycle out. Um, I think that goes back to what we were talking about in the previous episode about, um, you know, the the one and done mentality, right? Like uh, we have people who know how to write code and they can jump onto this project and they're allotted to your project for the next three months. And after that, they've got to go on the next thing. Otherwise that project is going to be behind. And so there's that continuous churn, like no, you know, none of the same resources are on the same project or working on the same objective uh, 
you know, for more than, you know, just a, a short amount of time. Um, given that that's kind of the traditional approach, it seems like it'd be really hard to um, make the shift to this more cross-functional uh, collaborative team approach. Yeah, and I think I, I've see, even seen within an engineering team itself that, okay, nobody is responsible for any one thing. They just like, okay, here's the work that we are, we've you know sort of signed up for for this release. And then they just assign stories out to, you know, whoever's the best person to do that particular story, right? So nobody gets really, you know, deep on any one set of customer problems. It's just wherever we have engineering, you know, um, uh, talent or, you know, uh, you know, abilities, we, we, we just assign them to those, 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 you know, those based upon their ability. Um, and so people get bounced around to a bunch of different things and never go deep on any one set of customer problems. Um, and so... I think that mentality of, hey, we can just like in, switch out individuals for individuals at any time and, and, and move them around. And, and the, the thinking about that um, a company as the, 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 the base unit of an co- organization as the individual, um, I think there's, there's reason to push back on that concept, right? Um, if you've read the, the book Team Topologies by Matthew Skelton and, and Manuel Paz, um, it's a book that came out last year, pretty, pretty recently. And I, it's a really great book. If you haven't read it, go, go out and read it because it's, 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 it's really, really good. Um, it talks about you know, teams and team structures and, and cl- different modes of collaboration. But they, um, they really state pretty, pretty emphatically in the book that the fundamental unit of an, of a company is not the individual, it's teams, right? You have a team that is going to get work done, not an individual that's going to get work done. And so instead of thinking about individuals and having them, you know, being able to, to move in in and out of an org, uh, you know, uh, a project and things like that, we should be more than thinking about here's a team of people that have these cross-functional, you know, attributes that can, we can move from, you know, one place to another and, and, and maybe do, you know, if you're going to move things around, move a team around, don't move a, a bunch of individuals around because if anybody's, you know, you know, there's always that forming, storming, norming process that teams mm-hmm. have to go through when you start to shuffle people around, when you have a group of people that are really used to working together and already have, you know, uh, a shared understanding of how to communicate and, and, you know, where their artifacts are going to be and how to collaborate and things like that. That is something you want to keep together because that is an effective you know, uh, a, a work machine, <laughs> I think. Um, and mm-hmm. when you pick that up, then that's, that's just adding inefficiencies into the organization. Individual contributors should not be individuals. <laughs> they should be contributors, contributors to a team, a, a shared effort, a shared goal. I, I even think about, you know, in organizations that I've been in, you know, when it comes to, you know, it comes to, you know, the company's not doing so well and there's like, you know, where they have to make cuts and what do they do when they make cuts? They go into, you know, they, 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 they cut individuals, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and, and, they, and they think about, and they move individuals around in the company because like, oh, we need engineering over here or we need, you know, something over here. And they don't even necessarily consider like, well, this is, you know, quote unquote, an engineer, but are they a front end engineer? Are they a back end engineer? Are they full stack? Do they specialize in a certain, you know, technology? They don't care. It's like, uh, this is a number on a spreadsheet and we have to get rid of that person. Right. And, you know, I've been in situations where we lost a whole bunch of like 
front end development talent because you know mm-hmm. the you know finance said well no we have to get rid of these people and it's like they were really valuable people we <laughs> so um especially when it comes to ux you know we we like those really good front end developers because they actually make our stuff real right so um when you know when they make uh, decisions like that based on individuals and and don't even see you know the the skill sets that they're getting rid of you know that breaks up teams and then we reorg and then they're storming and norming and it always takes a, it always takes a quarter when you reorg to like get to the point where you're actually um you know uh, productive again if your company was in the position to need to make cuts by looking at it through a team perspective um if you were aligned to specific OKRs or goals that that would allow you to make more intelligent choices based on this objective is a higher priority than that one. So rather than saying, we just want 10% of every team to be gone <laughs> tomorrow to save money. Um, and, and then, you know, the survivors have to soak up the, the excess because we're not going to cancel any projects, right? We're going <laughs> to, we're going to cut resources, but we're not going to cut back on our scope. Um, if you were aligned to, you know, having your teams organized around the objectives, um, it would facilitate uh, better, better planning, uh, better prioritization, and you know, and and of course, you know, that being the the worst case example of cuts. But even if it was just shifting to, you know, hey, we've got a a, a good team over here that's doing good work, but they're not working on the most important thing as we've as we've figured out, uh, or we've got you know a <laughs> a, a client deal <laughs> with a bunch of dollar signs attached to it let's move them over to work on that uh, together as a team, knowing that they can already function together uh, better than just being thrown into the the deep end with a a new team. You could, you know, clearly take a look at that and say, okay, let's, let's thin out the, 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 the part of the, you know, the the teams that are, you know, working on that part of the customer journey because it's not as as important as these other ones. And you can, you know, shift, shift, shift team resources around that way. Um, So I think, when you do that and you're, you know, when you're more purposeful about how you organize, then those hard decisions become a lot easier because it's, you can see where the value is flowing um, more easily through your organization. A well-structured cross-functional team or set of teams um, would be organized around a shared, a shared goal. They're working towards the same outcome. Um, but beyond that, what would you recommend as far as ways to, to structure those teams? Well, I think that, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to, to, to structure teams. I think if you go back to that team topologies book, they have um, a really good, uh, I think a really good um, um, list of ways to structure teams um, based upon, you know, things that I've seen in, in their consulting practices. Um, you know, there's, there's teams that are, dedicated to, you know, just, you know, what they call streamlined teams, which are either, you know, working on a specific, basically, you know, working on a specific stream of value for a particular um, 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 uh, constituent, right? Whether it's a customer or some sort of internal customer or things like that, um, where they're continually delivering value. And then you've got things that are platform teams that are, you know, really, you know, you know, building and maintaining the bedrock of all the things that are living on top of it. Things like, you know, like, you know, the, you know, the, your cloud infrastructure or even your design system would be, I think, considered sort of the platform because um, you're mm-hmm. using design system components and things like that. And then you have these things called enabling teams, which are teams that um, 
temporarily collaborate with maybe a platform team or a streamlined team to be able to um, you know, help them out in, a, in an area where they don't have enough expertise or they, they need help getting started on something. Um, and so they, uh, an enabling team kind of drops in temporarily to help that team um, and collaborates with them temporarily to get them so that they're autonomous once again. And then there's this concept of complicated subsystem teams where you have like something that's just really, really complicated, like, you know, IA algorithms or something, or, or uh, yeah, IA algorithms AI. or something like that. <laughs> AI, I always say IA um, because I'm a damn, I'm an information architect for life. Um, <laughs> Represent. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, but, you know, AI algorithm, things like that, that you, know, you need a sort of a specialized team for that. And then they talk about, well, now you have these, you know, four types of teams. Well, how do they collaborate? Well, you have streamlined teams. They're really just collaborating with themselves. Um, and then maybe you have an enabled team coming in and facilitating um, a team to get them so that they're, you know, autonomous once again. And then there's sort of the third type of collaboration, which is sort of called X as a service, where it's like you just set up something, which is a bunch of APIs so people can, you know, serve themselves. Like, a, like I'll give you an example. Like a design system, you might have a design system as a platform, right? So you'd have a platform team that um, that creates that design system, but then you have developers that have to adapt that design system, and mm, so maybe okay. the, the 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 design system team acts as an enabling team for a temporary amount of time to get that um, that that the that engineering team up to speed on implementing the design system and using it on a regular basis, so that they can then draw back. And now the, the, the platform, the design system platform is now sort of an X as a service, right? As it, it's, a, it's a platform as a service now that we've gotten that team up to speed. So, and this is just, you know, coming out of that, 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 that book, but I think it's a really good sort of taxonomy of teams and collaboration modes that help me in, in, in my work, you know, talk to other people about, hey, well, you know, what are we doing here, right? And when you're able to, you know, put some of these, you know, concepts and labels together, you can, you know, be able to talk about, you know, team structure and team collaboration in a more meaningful way when you have these classifications that sort of reflect the real world or not. <laughs> well, that's a good point. So um, maybe slightly different nomenclature, but I can see where uh, these align to a lot of the, uh, the popular functions that we'd be talking about. So like an enabling team, uh, being a, a design ops team, right? Like that's going to give us the, the, the tools and techniques and practices to help us function as, <laughs> as successful designers on our various uh, individual or not individual on our various <laughs> team projects. I, I think design ops is a really good, um, a, a really good analogy for, for that um, being able to come in and enable a team to like, you know, do their own research and then be able to like sort of, once they get up to speed and they can, they got all the tools and they've, you know, had some training to be able to, you know, be better, you know, researchers, then you can kind of just, you know, keep the, keep the faucet of like the automation stuff, like, you know, the automated recruiting and things like that you can have going on in the background so that they can just focus on, Hey, here's our, here's our research questions. Here's our script. And, um, you, you know, then, you know, rest of it automatically happens and they can just show up to, to, to research and, you know, talk to people, talk to customers mm -hmm. and users. I don't know. It's going to be hard giving up uh, organizing or, or shipping our org chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So basically, Condoy's law says organizations um, design systems which mirror their own communication structure. Um, so uh, 
I think that, um, you know, for example, um, when I was doing, when I was first doing UX back in the 2000s and, you know, we did a lot of web content websites in the consulting firms that I worked at, right? Um, and you would come in there and it was obviously obvious that the, the organization of the site was, oh, this, <laughs> this, this is this department, this is this department, this is this department, and this is this department, right? And like the tabs, mm -hmm. the main navigation would mirror those departments <laughs> like exactly, <laughs> right? Who needs an information architect when we have an org chart? <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, as me as a consultant coming in there and going like, well, here, let's, you know, we talked to a bunch of users and their mental model of what they want to do does not match the organization of your organization. So let's, you know, reorganize the website so that it matches what the, you know, what the user's mental model and what they're, you know, they're trying to accomplish and everything. And that always goes really well. You know, it's, it's, it's hard and it's hard work and you got to, you know, break down some, some, some barriers or whatever, but you ended up eventually coming up with the site that, you know, sort of matches the user needs. And then the consultants go away. And then what happens? Well, the organization didn't change their organizational structure. And then that site slowly starts to move back into the, 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 the organization that was before, because we didn't really fix the problem. We fixed, we put a bandaid on it, but mm -hmm. we didn't fix the problem of the organization. And, you know, like you said, the organization, you know, shipping the organization, your um, org chart, is exactly what Conway's law is saying, right? You know, if you don't fix your organization, your product is going to reflect that. And just for the sake of clarity, Conway's law is not saying that you should organize based on your communication structure, just that that's the tendency, right? No, you will ship products that look like your organization structure and there's not, there's <laughs> nothing you can do about it. it. It was originally talking about software architecture, right? There's like the mm -hmm. architecture of the, the architecture that you produce as an organization is going to reflect the communication structures of your, um, of your, of your organization. If you have two teams working on a compiler on a software compiler, you're going to have a two pass compiler, right? That, that <laughs> compiler is going to go through once and then it's going to go through twice. It's not going to happen all at once. Right. Cause you have two teams working on it. Right. So that's, that's sort of like the, 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 the joke of the, you know, the engineering joke on there. It's like, if you, um, if you, if you, if you, if it really reflects how you're going to do things. Um, so if you want to change the architecture of your product, the, it, it, it's not, you bring in an architect and change the architecture and make your, your the, these, these same teams make that architecture. That's, that's not going to work because eventually it's going to just kind of atrophy back into what your organization is. Instead, if you want to change the architecture, change your organization and that architecture will follow is, is, is really the, the, the message there. Well, I think it's a good argument for the trend towards trying to have uh, what they call the flat organizations, right? So there's not so many layers of uh, communication uh, you know, the, the classic approach being, you know, the CEO talks to the VP, the VP talks to the director, the director talks to the manager, the manager talks to the lead, the lead talks to the senior, the senior talks to the junior, uh, and, and, and nobody talks to each other. Uh, <laughs> yeah, th this is a good argument. Conway's law is a good argument for why, you know, flattening out that organization is, is going to help because if, if you're communicating more directly, um, w within your teams, but then also across the organization, 
you're more likely to, I guess, be enabled to uh, build according to those those customer outcomes rather than just, uh, oh, well, we've we've got the engineering people doing the engineering stuff and the design people are way over there doing the design stuff. Uh, product is upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Which, according to the Allen curve, means that uh, nobody's talking to them. <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> even though they're a mere 10 feet apart, they're on different floors. Oh, you're sitting directly above me. But, yeah, there's stairs involved. This is really about being truly agile, right? You know, agile, we, we did a whole episode about the agile manifesto and, and, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know, whether it's still valid today. And I think, you know, 90% of it is like, right on problem is most organizations don't actually do any of that stuff. They do something like scrum and say that they're agile or they're, you know, doing things that, um, you know, are agile for management to be able to control the, you know, their, their, their people more, right. Which is like antithetical to, to what agile is. Um, <laughs> but, um, I think, you know, when you have cross-functional teams, you can, you can, you're, you're better to get true agility. Cause like an engineering team, being agile within itself, even if it's actually, you know, sort of being, you know, somewhat agile, it, it's still not agile. If you have to, if you're, you're playing waterfall between, you know, two other disciplines like, you know, product management and, 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 and design. So um, if we want to be truly agile organizations, we can't just be agile within disciplines. We have to be agile across disciplines. And that's where I think cross-functional teams really come in. It's a great argument for why we should be organizing for cross-functional teams what can we as designers do to help make this happen in our organizations? Oh, that is the hard question. And that's the hard thing to do because you can't do it from where you sit as a designer in an organization, right? Um, who makes the decisions about how we organize? Well, somebody higher than our pay grade does that. And so you have to be able to convince people that are higher than your pay grade that it is, that this is important. It's kind of similar to getting people above your pay grade to um, understand that, you know, design is important and, you know, user research is important and all these other barriers to getting good experiences into customers' hands are important. And if you, you know, you're either successful in doing that or you're not. And that's kind of just how it is. Right. Not only are these damn designers telling me how important design is all the time, but now they're telling me how I should organize my company too. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you like, you know, you, you hear about, you know, companies and you hear this a lot lately. I've, I've heard it a lot lately. It's like, we want to, we, we want to, you know, differentiate our product based upon, uh, you know, user experience. You know, I've heard mm-hmm. that, you know, many, many times and very recently. And my question always is, okay, so what are you willing to change to be able to do that? What are you willing to, to invest in to be able to do that? What are you, you know, what, what, what is, what are you doing now that we, I can tell you to stop doing now and do something completely different. And you're going to say yes to that because you want to get a, a better experience. And those are really hard questions because people, uh, a lot of organizations and people in organizations don't understand that like, Hey, the reason why good experiences aren't getting to, to customers hands are these organizational barriers. And you right. can say, well, you just need, you guys just need to, you know, collaborate better or you need to be on the same page and blah, 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 or something like that. And that doesn't actually work. You can just, you can, and, and you know, uh, an executive can say that and, you know, try to force that, but 
you're good. What ends up happening is you get inefficiencies and you get burnout because of those inefficiencies. And then people, you know, get frustrated and, and they leave, right? Instead, you know, let's like, let's figure out how we can, you know, make it so it's much easier for these people, for people to, to, to collaborate and, and, and get on the same page and deliver real customer value. Cause everybody wants to do that. I'm, I really right. truly believe there's not been an organization I've ever been in where most of the people there truly wanted to, you know, make customers happy and sell really great products to them. And that's never, never, never the barrier. The barrier really, as, as I've seen it is, or these organizational barriers that we set up artificially because we think that's the, the, the way to do things. And it's very difficult to get people to, you know, to, 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 to get off those, those, those strongly held beliefs because you know, they've worked for them in the past and they've gotten them, you know, this, this job and their previous job and, you know, they're moving up the career ladder. They're, you know, mm-hmm. a senior vice president. And it's like, of course, why wouldn't I keep doing what I'm doing? Right. So it's very, right. it's, it's sometimes very difficult to talk people out of those things that they've done over and over the, the, you know, their entire career because, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. Some of the other approaches that, you know, you might try for that is uh, running a, you know, skunk works team to try to prove the model, but you know, that's either a way to, to prove the model or get yourself fired. Well, you know, another uh, approach to that is like getting, you know, actual permission to say, Hey, yes, you know, you know, you, I, I, I've been unable to convince you that, you know, this is the, 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 the way forward, but how about if you just let us do this one little part of the customer journey or this one little project and let us run this different and see if we can, you know, prove it out. If it, it you know, give us a certain amount of time, you know, a quarter, six months, and if we don't, you know, aren't hitting the outcomes that we're, we're talking about, then, you know, that's, we'll, then, you know, then you, you've proved us right or something like that. I don't know. Um, but just, you know, getting permission to be able to like, you know, run an experiment and an experiment. It's so important to be able to like experiment in how we work, right? Like we're so rigid sometimes about like, oh, this is the way we do it because this is in the scrum handbook or this is, you know, the way we've always done mm-hmm. it. And in, instead of like really, truly being agile and continually like evaluating you know, how we're doing things and, and, and truly changing based upon that, 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 you know, that, that regular reflection. If you present it in terms of this is an experiment, we want to try it. We want to learn from it. Maybe it revolutionizes the way we do business, or maybe we realize it just, it doesn't work here for whatever reasons. Like you said, uh, difficult things to achieve, but uh, designers are nothing if not uh, change agents, right? (laughs) That's what we're about. We have to be. Otherwise, we <laughs> we're like, well, why aren't you making the experience better? Well, because there's all these things that we have to change. And so we we continually try to get ourselves in a position where we can do that. So it's um you're right. We we're, we're changing agents and we 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 cuz out of necessity. And I think like if you talk to any of the, you know, the the old school UX people, you know, like especially from Adaptive Path and um, around that era, the early 2000s, they'll tell you the same thing. It's like, you know, that's what they learned early on was like, you had to be change agents in, in an organization to actually get good experience into customers' hands. And it's, you know, it's been the case for, you know, we've, we've known this for over 20 years now. Stop designers love. So Larry, you know what I love? <laughs> what do you love, Roman? <laughs> I love Gorilla Tape. <laughs> Okay, Gorilla Tape. Tell me about Gorilla Tape because I don't know if I've ever actually used Gorilla Tape. What 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 are the what are the characteristics of Gorilla Tape? 
All right. So specifically the Gorilla Tape, um, I guess technically speaking, it doesn't have to be Gorilla Tape specifically, but something that I finally did this week that has changed my life was uh, we have a roll of Gorilla Tape, um, which is basically it's duct tape, but it's not shiny silver. It's uh, black or maybe a very, very dark green. Um, But I finally tore off strips of Gorilla Tape and put them over all the little devices and gizmos in my bedroom that have little LED lights on them. Oh, those evil blue lights? <laughs> so the freaking light on the button on my CPAP machine, the light on my cell phone charger, the light on my fan, everything has a freaking little LED light on it, which I'm sure somebody thought, oh, well, this is great. It communicates the status of the system. It's on. It has electricity flowing to it without ever really thinking, do we need to see that 24-7? So I finally, I tore off strips of Gorilla Tape and I just very subtly covered up all of the obnoxious LED lights in my room and sleep is like it's never been before. That sounds divine. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah, it's interesting. Like, <laughs> design for devices that are in places like the bedroom where you don't really want to have lights on for about eight hours every night. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they should, they I, just need to, they need to have dark mode for your charger. Well said. <laughs> All right. <laughs> One of the many uh, startup ideas <laughs> dark mode for devices. Patented. We claimed it here. <laughs> but no, uh, so in particular, out of all the devices I listed, um, the two really egregious ones, one being the CPAP machine, which has to sit next to my bed because... And is designed for sleep. For it's specifically sleep. Right. designed for sleep. Now, I thought maybe that was uh, that was designed that way on purpose. If I don't turn it on, it's got a bright green light on it that bugs me all night. So on the nights that I try to skip my CPAP, uh, then I've got this light in my face. If I if I run the CPAP, then no light. So maybe that was on purpose. Uh, that's giving the benefit of the doubt. Either way, it's obnoxious. But we have a, a, a Dyson air filter fan that, you know, it, ostensibly this is the height of, <laughs> of product design. Um, it's elegant. It's beautiful. It's quiet, whisper quiet. I love it in terms of being able to have a fan on at night, keep the air flowing. But even that, uh, it has a night mode where it dims the LEDs, but it's still a light that just <laughs> shining just, in it your doesn't face turn it all off. freaking night. It, no. it, it turns on Why? a little moon-shaped LED light. <laughs> Why does a fan need to have a light to say that it's on? Because it's so quiet, Larry, that you might not know it's running if it didn't have an LED light to communicate the status. <laughs> well, Mr. Dyson, that's not something that's like, I, I have to have this ambient information all the time. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So that's my stuff designers love for the week. Get yourself some Gorilla Tape, some electrical tape, and cover up all those doggone lights, especially in your bedroom. Next up is my entertainment center. So I've got the Wi-Fi router that's got all these lights that are just oh doing this all freaking 
that are only useful Why? when your Wi-Fi is down and you're troubleshooting and you've reset things and you need to make sure that it, it came back on. But then after that, nope, doesn't matter. Right. If the lights are not flickering, then it's a bad thing. <laughs> the good state is to be obnoxiously seizure-inducing. So they just they just need to reverse that. Like when it's not working, the lights should be going. And when it's right. working, it should be nothing. Right. Just, just turn them off. <laughs> be okay. Off. All right. Well, if you found this show useful, usable, and desirable, please share a quick review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts because reviews help people find the show. And we appreciate your help with that. And remember that UX Like Us is your podcast. Follow us on Twitter um, at UX Like Us and let us know who you would like to hear on the show. We've had guests before. Um, we'll probably do some guests in the future. So let us know who you want to talk to, us to talk to, and we'll see if we can con them into uh, showing up. So I'm Larry King. I'm at LA King on Twitter. And Roman is at Superman still. And uh, <laughs> thanks for listening. It's the aluminium of podcasts. <laughs>